The best movies have a few things in common. Memorable scenes, quotable lines, characters you root for, an engaging story, and timeless appeal. And if that movie also happens to be a Christmas movie, well, then it's all but destined to become a Christmas classic. In 1983, moviegoers were introduced to little Ralphie Parker, an Indiana schoolboy who wanted just one thing for Christmas, a Red Ryder BB gun. And in the 34 years since its release, A Christmas Story has become one of America's favorite holiday films. You might even say it's become a modern Christmas tradition, and it's taken on a life beyond itself. What with the 24-hour marathon and the various merchandise and stage adaptations and sequels, the house in the movie was made into a museum, and there's even a bronze statue of Flick licking the flagpole at the Indiana Welcome Center. It's hard to imagine it now, but the movie wasn't a big success at first. In fact, it was already gone from theaters by the time Christmas of 1983 rolled around. Its popularity grew organically from word of mouth and a little help along the way from the VHS tape. So put on your pink bunny onesie because I triple dog dare you to learn the history behind a modern classic. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. There are just so many memorable lines from the movie. I double dog dare you. You'll shoot your eye out. Fragile. Oh, fudge. Electric sex gleaming in the window. There's more, but you get the point. And those scenes, like when Ralphie meets Santa Claus at the mall. The showdown with Scott Farkas. And yes, it's Scott Farkas, S-C-U-T, not Scott. The leg lamp. The pink bunny onesie. The Chinese restaurant. And of course, that iconic scene. I mean, the one commemorated in bronze at the Indiana Welcome Center where Ralphie's friend Flick is triple dog-dared into licking a frozen flagpole. There was a real pole there, but they put a piece of plastic over it that they had painted to look like a pole. That's Scott Schwartz. Yeah, THE Scott Schwartz, the actor who played the part of Flick. The first time we shot it, it was 12 and a half hours from beginning to end for the whole scene. It was hysterical. You know, we had hand warmers and leg warmers and we had battery-operated socks and long johns. I mean, it was a riot. It was freezing, but it was a riot. So we shot it once. The first time it took 12 and a half hours. And uh, unfortunately, due to some um, not too many good people at the lab up there in Canada, they uh, underdeveloped the film and we had to do it again. And we did a good job. We cut an hour off. We did an 11 and a half hours. I just had to ask Scott, what's it like to be basically a living breathing Christmas tradition. Maybe because I'm Jewish. I don't know. I don't really celebrate Christmas. You know, I celebrate Hanukkah, which is very funny. You know, I'm in a, uh, an American iconic Christmas film and I'm Jewish, but I see how people react and I see what their feelings are and, and, and how they project the care and love for all of us. I think it's cool to be a part of something that people 30 years later still want to watch. It's like we're a part of their family. The movie is based on a 1966 book by Gene Shepard, really a collection of stories he had previously published in Playboy magazine. And that's Shepard's voice we hear narrating the story. And it was directed by Bob Clark, whose previous movie was the R-rated comedy Porky's. I mean, you have to look at the history of Bob Clark. This guy has done some incredible stuff. He does Black Christmas. 
which is a small little movie and becomes this iconic type film. Then he does Porky's. And it becomes this monstrous thing. Then he does Christmas Story. And it becomes just this iconic Christmas film. And he somehow connected with the American psyche. You know, he was the one that wanted to do this. He kept pushing for it. Christmas Story was a labor of love. He wanted to do it because he loved Gene Shepard. And he wanted to make this little movie. It was all done on a shoestring budget and a short 10-week shooting schedule most of it being shot in Canada. Bob Clark even returned his director's fee to the studio to keep everything within budget. And when it was released in 1983, it was a bit of a sleeper. The film did okay the first week. It had more theaters the second week and more theaters the third week. And by the fourth week, it was gone because all the theaters were taken for the big holiday films. One little behind-the-scenes tidbit Scott told me was that the kids who played Ralphie, Flick, Schwartz, and Randy weren't allowed to hang out on set with the actors who played Scott Farkas and his toady Grover Dill. Bob literally wanted us to be scared to death of the bullies, so therefore he kept us away from them. So when and how did it go on to become the juggernaut it is today? Well, about five years after the movie released, an electronic device was gaining mass market appeal in America, the video cassette recorder. With movies now available on video cassette, people could not only watch them whenever they wanted to, but they could also share them. It was a very retro example of something going viral. It kind of became this cult classic on VHS. People would say to their friends all year long, hey, have you seen a Christmas story? No, what's that? Here, take my VHS tape. Just people passing around the VHS tapes. But probably the real turning point was when Turner Entertainment Company bought the rights to the movie and started presenting 24-hour movie marathons on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. The movie marathons have been aired on the channels TNT, TBS, and TCM. The, the rocket ship to the moon is really like 96, thanks to Ted Turner buying the MGM package and then needing more films and whatever. One of the last films that they bought was A Christmas Story. They didn't really know what to do with it, and they suggested a marathon. Now, maybe one of the things that really appeals to people is the sense of nostalgia the movie evokes. Not only nostalgia for having grown up watching the movie, but the nostalgia for a bygone era depicted within the film. So it's interesting to point out that we don't know for sure when the movie is supposed to take place. There is a reference to The Wizard of Oz, so that means it's set no earlier than 1939. And the soundtrack includes Bing Crosby's version of Santa Claus is Coming to Town, which came out in 1943. So it's set in a sort of amorphous period of late 30s to early 40s. But like I said earlier, there's that sense of timelessness about it. The story of the young boy and that one special Christmas gift he dreams about is something anyone who celebrates Christmas can relate to, regardless of time and place. And that's why, even though I can probably recite the movie by heart, I will most definitely be revisiting Ralphie and the gang this Christmas just as I've done every Christmas for the last 20-odd years. And no matter how many times I've seen it, it'll never be as many times as our friend Scott Schwartz. I watched it probably five or six hundred times by the time I was 18 years old. You watch it during the holidays. So even if you watch it five times, six times over the course of the holidays, it's going to take you 30 years to watch that movie as many times as I've seen it already. I've seen it six, eight hundred times. Of course, after that famous flagpole scene, the fire department and the police show up. 
That's what happens when kids get a little too mischievous, as our friend Anthony can surely tell you. When I was three years old, my grandmother came to visit. I had just learned a new game that I loved to play with my dad. I would hide around the house and just kind of wait for someone to find me. I decided to myself I would play this game with my grandma. My parents left for work. It just left me and my grandma. As she found herself uh, occupied with something, I slowly crept behind the Christmas tree. She came back to the room and said my name. I covered my mouth to stop from giggling. She called my name multiple times and still nothing. I was determined to impress my grandma at how good of a hider I could be. I was too young to realize how terrified she was, but in my mind, I was thinking I was going to get a real treat. My grandma ends up calling my mom, worried, and I'm still nowhere to be found. My mom, uh, she starts to drive back home, and as that's happening, my grandma decides to call the police. Uh, just as she hangs up the phone, I jump out from behind the tree and yell, Surprise! She was incredibly startled and was quite upset with me. Once <laughs> uh, she canceled the police presence, she scolded me about why it's not okay to do that, and went back to cooking things in the kitchen for later that day, helping me make one of my family's uh, best Christmas memories. Anthony is a blogger and soon-to-be podcaster who's interested in true crime. You can check out his blog at criminallyintrigued.com. Well, guess what, guys? That was the last regularly scheduled episode of Christmas Past for the 2017 season. When I say regularly scheduled, I mean episodes like this where I dig into the backstory behind a tradition. But if you've been following along, you'll remember that last time I told you I've got a special bonus episode lined up. It's coming out this Friday, and that's why this episode arrived on a Wednesday and not a Thursday. I needed to make room for the bonus episode. The bonus episode is dedicated to more of your Christmas memories. People have been asking me if I could do an episode full of Christmas memories, and I'm happy to say that this year I can make that happen. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you'll get it automatically. Also, there's not much time, but there is time if you're interested in being part of that episode. You know the drill by now. If you want to share a Christmas memory, record a memo into your phone's voice recorder app and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. But hurry! The bonus episode may also include another surprise or two. I'm still working that part out. And of course, I'll be back on Christmas Eve, just like last year, to wish you a Merry Christmas, do a Christmas 2017 year in review, and a little year-end wrap-up for the show. Until then, let me tell you that Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. I'd like to say thanks to Scott Schwartz. I had such a great time talking to him. And this episode wouldn't have been possible unless Eric Norton, the host of the Fat Packs podcast, hadn't introduced me to Scott. So thanks again, Eric. Search for Christmas Past Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to follow along and find more information about the show at christmaspastpodcast.com. I hope at this point you're ready for the big day and now you can just relax and enjoy the rest of the season. And I know I would enjoy it if you joined me again next time for more stories, including your stories, from Christmas Past.